Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. I'd been completely duped as well. It was like, um, I wasn't exploited, but it was a sort of, I felt like I'd been aiding trafficking, which I had been. And I think we all do, all the time. Welcome to the Doctor's Kitchen podcast with me, Dr. Rupi, where we discuss the most important topics and concepts in the medicinal qualities of food and lifestyle. My guest today is Dr. Rosie Riley, who is a clinical fellow in emergency medicine and founder of Vita. Now, you might think that this is an odd topic to bring up on a podcast that's focused on food, nutrition, lifestyle. But Rosie is passionate about seeing an end to modern slavery. And once you know about how pervasive modern slavery is in modern life, just life, you, you can't unsee it. Over the last five years, she has fought to transform the healthcare response and promotes the recognition of modern slavery as a major health challenge to individuals and societies. We have a really honest, open, pragmatic conversation about the company that she founded called Vita. And this was born out of a particularly traumatic experience where Dr. Rossi shares her story of how she unknowingly as a teenager contributed to human trafficking. And it was out of this terrible experience where she suffered anxiety as a result that she founded an organization working to ensure that victims who present to healthcare settings can be safely identified and supported whilst advancing and facilitating national modern slavery prevention. It's now been delivered to more than 1,200 frontline NHS care professionals. However, her aim is to make sure that this is mandatory. Anyone who works in healthcare setting, regardless of your profession, regardless of your background, you should be aware of this in the same way that we are aware of safeguarding issues regarding children. I was pretty shocked actually at just how pervasive modern slavery is in our lives and it touches everything including food. Uh, We do talk about some websites that she mentions uh, throughout the podcast. I'll make sure that those are linked to uh, in the podcast notes on the doctorskitchen.com. 
for now i don't really want to say too much um you can find the recipe that i cook for dr rosie on the on the youtube uh, channel the doctor's kitchen um and please do give this a five-star review if you found it useful you can find my guest uh, across social networks the links will be on the doctorskitchen.com at vita underscore network v-i-t-a and uh, at dr rosie riley all one word as well on twitter for now i'm going to stop talking on with the podcast So today, as it's the morning, I'm gonna... It's always difficult actually cooking for guests in the morning because I don't mm. want to just do like oats or something like that. I actually want to give you something, you know, Lunchy. that... Yeah, exactly. Okay. So today I'm doing a Middle Eastern style breakfast. Yeah. Very, very simple. A lot of the stuff I've actually bought and it's just really placing it all together. And it okay. just, you know, you're a busy NHS doctor. You don't want to be like, you know, preparing everything from scratch. So these are a few elements that I've got. Um, we're going to do some wilted spinach um, with a little bit of parsley. Any issues with parsley? No, I love parsley. Some people do have issues with parsley, but that's great to hear. All I've done in advance is just simply chopped and roasted some aubergine mm -hmm. in a little bit of olive oil and some salt okay. in the oven for about 30 minutes. But you can buy like char grilled aubergine that mm. you can just get from a jar. Um, some hummus that I could make myself, but I didn't. I've just got a store-bought one. They're very good. You just want to look for the ones the that I've got. The lazy man's breakfast. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, it is. Really is. Yeah. Uh, we've got some cobbers, which are some um, uh, Middle Eastern pitters. I'm just going to pop these in the oven that's still a little bit warm. So we've got those to enjoy with the Yummy. breakfast for you. Um, some olives, mm -hmm. Kalamata olives that have been de-seeded. Yeah. and uh, some kefir as well. Um, well. I would serve this with uh, something called labne. I don't know if you've heard of labne. No, I haven't. And is kefir like a yogurt then? Yes, okay. yeah. So kefir is a, a dairy, you can get non-dairy versions. So that's a dairy one. Um, labne is like a thick uh, Middle Eastern cheese almost. Uh, okay. Kind of like cottage, uh, um, cottage cheese, but um, a lot smoother. Okay. And it's absolutely wonderful and it's fermented food and it's very good for your guts uh, as we were talking the microbiota exactly <laughs> uh, so I'm just going to prep all that together and then hopefully you'll have a wonderful breakfast great cool I'm excited <laughs> good good I'm glad so your mum's a chef mum's a chef and so you must eat pretty well at home we right? eat really well um my mum and dad used to live out in Thailand and wow. so mum properly learned Thai food when she was there um, so we eat a lot of Asian food. Oh, I was wondering if you're going to cook something Thai. Actually, I oh. sneakily put it on the. Oh, did you? <laughs> By the way, I really like Thai food. I love Moroccan food uh -huh. <laughs> and Middle Eastern food too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, she's a really good cook. Really oh, good. I'm kind of glad I didn't do anything Thai because oh, if your mum's like the, the pressure, expert, yeah. wow, yeah. <laughs> That's, uh, no, I, I'm, this is what I'm more comfortable with. So what kind of things do you kind of eat then at, at home? What's your favorite Thai dish? Um, my favorite Thai dish is Tom Kha Gai, Thai green curry. Uh -huh. um, but I also love Tom Young, boom, uh -huh. uh -huh. Um And then actually my dad and my favorite, I and dad and I favorite is um, Pakra Prao, which is like, Thai, you all know what it is, but it's Thai um, basil and sort of soy saucy kind of with some minced meat with rice. Wow. Really yummy. That sounds amazing. And your pronunciation is on point, I must say. <laughs> <laughs> well, my mum and dad speak Thai. Oh, really? Yeah. So how long were they out there for? Four years. 
Wow. But they're quite intense expats and they learn the language properly. Yeah. Oh, that's brilliant. Yeah. And so I'm assuming you've you've been to uh, all different parts of Asia, right? Yeah. Um, well, when we, we then lived in Hong Kong. Mm. Um, so we would go back to Thailand quite a lot and we'd visit, you know, Singapore and different parts where we have friends still out there. And we're all going out as a family in a couple of weeks oh, to amazing. Thailand again. So it's very, very familiar. Uh-huh. Yeah. And so tell me about how you got into medicine, first of all. Like, what's your what's your personal what story? What happened? Um, I actually remember never actively wanting to be a doctor until a sort of decision moment lesson. I was like, I'm going to be a world-class acrobatics pilot. No way. <laughs> so I, I was, you know planning with my dad how to become a pilot through BA and how to learn and then go into no acrobatics. Yeah, I was properly like on that road. What? How on it? What? <laughs> and then in year 10, I watched in biology class and they showed a video of open heart surgery and I was like, now nah, I want to do that. Yeah. So then I immediately wanted to be cardiothoracic surgeon, <laughs> <laughs> which is like the opposite of my character. But anyway, I, I wanted to be cardiothoracic surgeon and then, um, even my grandparents still think I'm going to become a cardiothoracic surgeon. <laughs> yeah, I changed as soon as I went to med school. I was going down the obs and gynae route, uh-huh. um, and then changed. Realised more and more I'm quite a generalist, so A and E and GP for me. Yeah, yeah. And to I remember at the time um, when we first uh, connected, you were doing A and E. Yeah. Still and, doing. And you're still doing any at the moment. Yeah. Well, I I was based at um, Major Trauma Centre in London okay. for couple of years um one year i did just an a and e because uh-huh. i'm crazy yeah um oh, yeah, nearly wow. caught burnout just in time funnily yeah. enough moved yeah. to rural somerset to kind of live a different style of life uh-huh. and now down in um taunton a and e there wow which is great yeah that's amazing this looks delicious oh uh, so uh, i've just so little lemony things yes yeah so i forgot to mention um preserved lemons one of my oh. favorite ingredients they give like almost like a lemonade uh, kind of um, flavor and it's quite typical in like Iranian dishes um, any dishes from that sort of area Um, and it's like quite like unlike anything else that you've you've kind of yeah it's really really good but if you don't if you don't have access there you don't need to put that is it nice in like tagines and things yes actually yeah so sometimes people don't like the the harsh sweetness of um like a dried apricot or you know the sultanas or you know even cranberries you can put in there um so it's actually quite um it's a, it's a lot uh, it's a lot more acidic and so you get like a different flavor out of it um, but still, still some sweetness so, yeah. is good for it as you know I'd say so with the um, spinach I'm doing a lot of stuff on my hands today but I quite like that so with the spinach I've literally just put it in here and I'm just wilting it very very gently um, and that's going to just be served on the side so um, at the moment uh, you're in your third year. I'm I'm F four. F four. Okay. So I guess for non medics, <laughs> I'm on my fourth or fifth gap year right, in my yeah. life. <laughs> <laughs> but um, no, just really enjoying not being on the training conveyor belt to mm. um, the end. I'm mm. really enjoying just being a SHO, senior house officer in A and E. Yeah. Yeah. GP I- training from potentially august okay if i get in if you I mean, well i got in before but i didn't want to start then but oh, i didn't realize that you got in before i was supposed to start in greenwich oh, really? <laughs> yeah and then i wanted to leave london so 
And I think that's probably one of the best decisions. Oh, I've had, um, I'm having a great time, yeah. <laughs> yeah, because I actually uh, wanted to go for um, uh, GP training in London and I got uh, Mid-Sussex. Right. And I remember feeling like, ah, oh, like a bit disappointed, but honestly, one of the best things that ever happened because getting out of London actually oh, learning so nice. <laughs> about yeah about what like um medicine is like on the peripheries mm. you have a lot more sort of uh community vibes i think with other medics yeah. as well and you just learn about um not a slower pace of medicine but just a different pace of medicine yeah. um outside of london because as you know i mean and the rates of burnout are just crazy yeah yeah and i think king's is probably one of the busiest a and e's in the uk yeah so going to a rural somerset hospital a and e yeah um and they're so friendly the patients are lovely i haven't been shouted at by a patient once oh no way really i know wow. that's like uh, <laughs> that's unheard of it's really nice it's such a nice atmosphere and that's an unusual thing to say about an a and e department but yeah. it, i'm really enjoying it down there oh great great i'm glad What's this? Okay, so this is za'atar. Uh, it's one of my favorite spices. I use it quite often mm -hmm. in the doctor's kitchen here because um, it's just incredible. It's, just it's a, Yeah, it's just a mixture of like dried um, oregano, marjoram, uh, mm -hmm. you've got some sesame in there, a little bit of cumin, uh, mm -hmm. gives a little bit of heat. Um, and honestly, it's just like a wonderful sort of uh, flavor that just goes on so many different things, root vegetables, and I've just put it here on the, on the hummus. Yeah. Um, for you. So, so tell me a little bit about um, your your background with with Vita and how that came to fruition. Well, um, I guess it's it's a, a bit of a long story with how I became passionate about modern slavery. Mm -hmm. um, it all stems from when I was eighteen. I um, decided I wanted to go and do something nice in my gap year. So I went to Nepal with one of my best friends and um, we were gonna go and we did the voluntourism thing, which has now been dubbed voluntourism, where we, you know, you feel good about yourself and you go and help some, some people who are like less well off. Yeah. But we went to live in an orphanage for a month and we lived in the orphanage. There were 20 children, it was absolute chaos. They were really yeah. grotty. <laughs> yeah. um, but we really did love the kids. Um, and then when, um, you know, we, we were sort of ready to move on when we did, not really appreciating the impact of, oh, being another adult that meets lots of children that leaves them. Mm. So there's lots of quite significant harm that can come to that kind of voluntourism thing. Yeah, that conveyor belt. That I only people. now know yeah. about. Um, mm. But then in... Uh, actually three years late I was, I was starting medical school and I um, my friend called me who'd went on my on traveling with me saying I need to sit down and watch this um, channel Four unreported world documentary and uh, they the whole 30 minutes was about my orphanage happy home and so they told the story of how they were undercover uh, undercover investigators looking into how these children had been trafficked to the orphanage so they went around rural villages and took children from families, took their birth certificates, had the police on board so families couldn't like reclaim their children and then um, made them look really grotty and poor so that they could scam people like me to uh, give money. And they found out on the program, they were sneaking into the orphanage I'd lived in to speak to Bishwa, the owner. I mean, it's on Channel 4. You can literally watch the show. I'll definitely link to that, yeah. Um, 
And the, you know, there's one family in the mountains where they hadn't seen their daughter in 10 years and Claire and I recognized her face and her name. And there was a little kid that had escaped. They managed to interview with the mom. They were terrified they'd find them. And so we were like devastated. I mean, we couldn't believe what on earth we'd been conned into as well. Cause we were like, but we were trying to help. And yeah. um, um, so that, that's where it all really kicked off. It was very personal. I had a mini sort of breakdown after that, thinking like, what is this? Um, looked into modern slavery, found out, you know, people are being exploited in a very intentional way. This is, I've never heard of this before. I thought slavery was old and dead and gone. Mm. Um, and then Essentially, it was actually one of my friends who, and I was a sort of mid-breakdown going, it's so big, I can't, I've got to do something, I don't know what to do. And uh, he actually said, look, you, you can't, it's too big. Mm -hmm. You tackle what you know. And at that point, I was a medical student, so I thought, well, let's look at healthcare. And that's how, that's how you Vita it. sort of started. Wow. I feel like we've just left it on a massive cliffhanger. <laughs> <laughs> we can talk about more later. Yeah, yeah we definitely need to talk about that. Um, but how old were you at the time? When um, you what with the orphanage yeah 18 oh wow so i was a kid um oh, wow. i didn't know anything about anything I'd, i had a pretty easy life and not really any major trials or tribulations and then it was my first exposure to like the darkness of humanity and yeah. it was really um it was really really hard to yeah. deal with yeah yeah um, absolutely we should definitely get into that. Uh, but before, I'm going to serve you yes. a delicious Let's uh, eat this. meal. This looks good. Um, so I've just got these cobbets. I'll take a couple out of the oven. These are beautifully warm. Mm -hmm. So this, wow. as you can tell, is a very. It's it's actually a lot simpler than it looks. So a lot of the things have just been put together by me buying a few things from the supermarket and then placing on the plate. So. Yeah. To, um, to go over it again, we have roasted aubergine with some black olives, a little bit of the preserved lemon, some parsley. I'm just gonna dress that with some lemon juice that goes over the spinach as well. Um, some hummus with za'atar. Honestly, getting hummus from the store, mm -hmm. putting a little bit of za'atar in it, a little bit of pomegranate molasses and olive oil, it changes your hummus <laughs> completely. It's a completely Who different has experience. pomegranate molasses? I know, <laughs> no right? One. I'm telling you, this okay, is in right. most supermarkets now. I'll tell Go get mom. it, go right. get it. And you can get it online if you can't uh, find it, but it's absolutely wonderful. Um, you, don't, you don't need the pomegranate molasses if you can't find it. <laughs> <laughs> Wilted spinach, it's just, it's just spinach yeah. in a pan. No water, no oil, nothing. Just put it uh, the lid on, very low heat, and it just naturally wilts, and you mm -hmm. can, you know, the whole bag can go down. Um, uh, lemon juice, salt, and then some cobbers and a little bit of sumac with uh, the kefir, but you don't need to have the kefir if you don't eat dairy for whatever reason. No, yum, 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 yum. Good, all right, let me get you a spoon. Great and we'll let you dive into that. In the break, we were chatting about your parents' farm. <laughs> Tell us about woofing, what is that? Woofing, I'm not gonna say the acronym well, Worldwide Organic Something Farm. Um, and it's where people travel around the world and they live on the land and they get to know a family and you become part of the family. Some some are a little bit more workery, so you'll live in a caravan and uh. work on a vineyard. But we have people from everywhere coming to stay throughout the year and um they really do become part of the family. Yeah. 
yeah. and it's great fun. We've got friends now from all around the world that we even have seen and visited. Yeah. Um, and they just, they work the land, they live with us, they eat with us, they cook with us, they do everything with us and it's really great. And my mum also gets a lot of help with the farm. That's amazing. It sounds like a magical experience. It is. It's absolutely amazing. It's yeah. really good fun. And it's almost like your parents adopt uh, yeah. some people as well, right? Yeah. So one of one of them made my parents her godparents. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so it really, really so nice. went well. <laughs> That's great. That's what happens when you feed people, you yeah, know? Yeah. It's all about food. Yeah. And we're also saying how like my family is obsessed with food and every holiday we ever have, we will the whole day and the whole holiday is about where we're gonna eat and what we're gonna eat. Yeah. We will only go places where we know the food is good. It rules out quite yeah. a few places. Yeah, exactly how I am with my family. We spend most of our time like watching food programs or eating or planning the next meal that we're going to cook or where we want to eat and stuff. And it's it's great. It's just such a connector as well. Yeah. We just discovered actually this recent, it's really old cooking, cooking show with, I can't remember his first name, something Floyd. Keith Floyd. Keith Floyd. Oh my God, it's Keith Floyd. So, I mean, we literally were in hysterics. This guy is so drunk the whole time. He's always like gulping the wine yeah, yeah, and he's like talking to his director. Yeah, oh, it's yeah. so funny. Yeah, actually, I've thought about doing a parody of Keith Floyd. I love it. My, film, my videographer, actually, because <laughs> I feel like he does, he's such an expert because if anyone hasn't seen it, um, there's regular clips of Keith Floyd on Saturday Kitchen every single week. And I'm obsessed with Keith Floyd because he's so natural and he can just do a meal and like talk to the And it goes guy. terribly wrong. It always goes wrong. And then wrong. The, the, the person, the, the real chef there is like, this is awful. <laughs> this is awful. You're doing it all wrong. And he's like, well, and it's it's just hilarious. I love it. And he's, like, he's a genuinely like good cook really as good well. Cook. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he's not always doing fish and stuff. So yeah, that's great. I, 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 I've got a lot of time for Keith Floyd programs. They're brilliant. Yeah. How was the food? I forgot to ask you. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, really, really good. good. Really loved it. Zesty, I think, is the word for the meal. Excellent. Really loved it. Yeah. Feeling fresh, If healthy. you want to cook the recipe, you can um, follow it on the YouTube uh, channel, thedoctorskitchen.com as well, and you'll get all the uh, stuff there. We were talking and we kind of left it on a bit of a cliffhanger. Oh, we did. Yeah. <laughs> oh, to bring the tone dramatically down. Oh, yeah. But it's, it's incredible. I didn't realise that your realisation was actually when you were watching the programme. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Thought, That's incredible. Well, I mean, I... So a lot of people said, well, in hindsight, did you spot any signs? Um, so when I was... Claire and I did, we, we did wonder because we when we were there, we were wondering why some of them, like a lot, most of them, pretty much all of them had parents. And we were like, why are you in an orphanage? Um, but also we didn't really know anything about exploitation or like organized crime, anything like that. So, you know, what you don't know, you don't know. So um, we just didn't really take look into it at all. And then this show completely, I actually have like this, picture that I've put up on my wall I made it when I was having this sort of breakdown realization and it was I just got all of the coloring um, pictures that they'd drawn for me and I just made it into a little montage so I've got it on my wall so I can always like remember I've written a message on the back like, oh, I, don't know, I won't forget what happened yeah. Um, but yeah I think that's where that's where it all stemmed from um, really sort of Oh, it just it really opened my eyes um and also just feeling a little bit like i i'd been completely duped as well it was like um i wasn't exploited but it was a sort of i felt like i'd been aiding trafficking wow. which i had been yeah. and i think we all do all the time yeah. but i was very acutely aware of how i directly funded this 
business. Um, so that was a very horrifying realization, especially as I was so little. Yeah, exactly. I mean, like, how on earth did you even begin to start processing that after your realization? Um, so I have, I had a very supportive network. Um, I lived in Bristol. I was at med school. Um, so I had friends who were, would come in, talk it through. There was actually about two days where I didn't really want to leave the house. Um, and so they would come to my house and they would like get me food and they were, we were talking it through. And I was just like crying and like, I don't understand. Um, and reading and reading and reading up about this world. And it was a realization that human beings are being bought and sold and conned and tricked and forced into working or duping people for money. Um, and it became more and more of an awareness. And I heard about the term trafficking and I was really interested in what that was. Um, but then the more I read, the more you realize how, how big it is. Um, you know, stats that are not particularly helpful, but can, you know, give you a clue as to the scale. Um, there are more people living in slavery than at any other time in human history. Um, it's the fastest growing illegal crime. It's well overtaken drugs. More people, more money is made from selling people than selling drugs. Um, so these sorts of things were really like overwhelming. And um, I don't know, this is a bit cheesy, but you have you heard the Wilberforce quote of you may choose to look the other way, but you can never say again that you did not know. Mm-hmm. And I really had that kind of moment where I was like, I can't just move on and just pretend that didn't, that I haven't just heard about this. Um, so I then the, my, one of my best friends at the time actually really helped me because he was like, well, let's start with what you've what you've got in front of you, um, your own demographic, your own cohort of people that you can start to shift the culture a little bit and think about how you can target, try and take this down, but just with what you can access. And I was learning to be a doctor. So I was starting to think, you know, do people come into health services? I mean, this must have significant consequences on their mental and physical health of people who are exploited. So I was looking into it. I was asking doctors everywhere I could find and nurses everywhere I could find going like, have you heard of trafficking? Have you heard of human trafficking? I did a survey and um, people had heard of it, but they didn't really know what it was. Um, but a lot of people were saying like, there have been a few times when I've been thinking about this patient or I've been worried about this pattern of activity in this general practice and I haven't really known, um, but I have no idea what to do. Yeah. So I developed a training program. I was a third year medical student. I barely clapped eyes on a patient by that yeah. point. I mean, it was Bristol. It's quite like lecture heavy. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think a lot of people, just for those who are listening who aren't aware of the medical system, the first couple of years are quite... Uh, lecture based and a lot more sort of science um, before you even get let onto the wards where you can actually have conversations with patients yeah, so yeah. by that point you would have been pretty like- I'd seen you know I'd met patients but I was just starting to learn you know how to take a history and how to do an examination things so but then I had this program and I um, you know we offered it out to general practices and so within a three-week period, I was invited to train eight general practices across Bristol in a sexual health clinic. So I had um, nearly 60 
mostly GPs yeah. who were invited me what, to what, train. Were you a third year? At the time? I was a third year medical wow. student, and I was blown away by the demand. They were like, "Yes, we see this. We're worried. We don't know what to do. Come and tell us." Yeah. And I was just so I was very humble because they were fully qualified, and um, but it was it was really interesting and. I looked at sort of the before and after confidence and knowledge in different categories and found that there was really a, a shift and improvement. So I just continued rolling out this training wherever um, alongside full-time med school and then into full-time junior doctoring. Um, we moved to the Southeast then London. And um, I don't know when it sort of shifted into actually becoming more of a I, I, I went to the Royal College of General Practice Conference in 2017 and um, lots of GPs were coming up. We did a poster and people were interested in um, that one. <laughs> but anyway, uh, <laughs> lots of GPs were like reading it and, and going like, come and train us, come and train us. We want to know about this stuff. Um, and I was thinking I'm literally max capacity. I'm going to like, I'd never want to look at this again because I can't do this anymore. It's too many. So I started thinking about how to make it more sustainable. And that's sort of where Vita birthed. Yeah. Um, it, it's the organization of Vita, which is to advance the health response to modern slavery. And it's sustainable, survivor-focused and evidence-based. That's our core values. Wow. I mean, there's so much stuff that I want to go back to. And that. A lot of meat in there. <laughs> no, no, definitely. I mean, uh, I mean, first of all, the statistics around uh, drugs um, being less than, uh, mm. drugs making less money in the yeah. illegal market than trafficking, the mind boggles because some of the richest men in history mm. have been, uh, you know, like drug Pablo Escobar and drug lords and stuff. Yeah. And we're talking billions upon billions of mm. dollars and if tra trafficking is more than that, and, yeah. and we don't, if you ask most people on the street, they'll think that slavery does not exist anymore. This is something that we yeah. abolished over a hundred years ago, you know, with the revolution, America and all these different things. And I don't think people are aware at all. I mean, I, I feel very ignorant that I was even aware of those statistics. Yeah, no, it's, it's that one's one that people are like, whoa. Yeah. Um, I, I mean, the, the only stat, financial stat I've got is from 2012 and um, forced labor alone. So not the different other forms in which someone can be exploited, but forced labor alone was making more than 150 billion a year. And that's um, 2012. Oh, my God. So um, it's and actually I heard an interview with a trafficker, an ex-trafficker. And they were saying, you know, you sell drugs and then they're gone. You sold them yeah. with a human, you know, you can make money again and again and again. So it's a low risk, high profit industry. Oh, my God. And with, um, I think perhaps we should define exactly what we mean by trafficking. Yeah. Uh, what, what does that term mean? Because I think like... Like you said, when you were a third year and you were asking nurses and other healthcare mm. professionals exactly what we mean by trafficking, most people wouldn't be able to define it. So what, what do you So I, I, a consolidated definition would be it's the movement of people by force, fraud, coercion or deception with the aim of exploiting them. Um, human trafficking is comes under the umbrella of modern slavery. Um, the UK uses the term modern slavery as a legal term. The rest of the world, I don't think, really does. They more talk about trafficking. Um, but modern slavery is a bit more of an umbrella and it's a little bit harder to define, but it includes other sort of definitions like the term slavery, servitude and forced labour. It's a bigger umbrella. 
Yeah. And I'm assuming within the world of trafficking and modern slavery, there are different industries. Sex is the one that comes to mind. That's usually the one that people think about first um, forced sexual exploitation, um, which is the forcible or deceptive recruitment of men, women and children for forced prostitution and sexual exploitation. So that um, there's I also yeah, I mean, when I was I, I went to a conference recently and there were a lot of survivors and they were talking about how it's very difficult to define when you when someone is a victim sometimes because one day they'll feel a victim, one day they'll feel a sex worker and indifferent, and one day they'll feel empowered and very much in control. And so there's there's quite a grey here. I mean, it's difficult to say this camp, this camp, this camp. Um But what's interesting is actually globally and in the UK, by far the biggest form of exploitation is labour, forced labour. So we don't talk about that as much. Um, In the States, um, it's even less recognised, really. Um, Or it's recognised legally, but not in the public arena. But it's basically forced work under the threat of some form of punishment. Um, so industries in the UK, people are forced to work, are are usually low regulated, um, poorly regulated industries. And that could be construction, agriculture, farming, um, car washes, yeah. nail salons, hospitality industries, restaurants. With the gig economy, I imagine that there's going to be a lot of grey area, uh, isn't there, regarding uh, workers' rights, um, the protections that you have, uh, as well as um, being forced into certain practices mm-hmm. um, without uh, due compensation. Um, do you think that's going to have an impact on how we define modern slavery and how we actually With change? our economy. Yeah. I think that um, it's, it's sort of difficult to predict. Most of this is sort of best guess. Um, I think that you can look at theory that you could theorize what might happen if this happened um you know even talking about brexit i mean who knows what's going to happen to to modern slavery stats um it's best guess i think um if without it's the lack of regulation it's the agency what hiring hiring from agencies and subcontracting out means that you're not responsible for your worker someone else's and they might be exploiting where you think oh i'm getting some farmers to help me with the harvest and actually that agency is trafficking those people and they're not actually free to work and yeah i I can imagine this is almost like a systematic process within certain industries who uh purposely will farm out um you know the uh the workers um so they don't have to have responsibility the one that springs to mind is clothing Mm -hmm. Um, so, you know, if you if it's outside, out of mind, we're not uh, directly employing uh, slave workers, but our secondary companies that we work with might be, and then they get off scot-free. But uh, I'm assuming there's some work that actually yeah. helps with the responsibility of that. Well, because it is important exactly that, that the businesses are held accountable for anyone in their supply chain. So in 2015, the Modern Slavery Act came through the UK, and that's... Uh, one of the first sort of bills of its era in the world that was trying to nail down um, convictions, prosecutions and things in the UK. Uh, one of uh, one of the aspects is looking at transparency in supply chains. And so they've now in that in that law, I mean, any company that earns more than 37, I think, million a year 
have to write an annual report about slavery in their supply chains. Oh, wow. Okay. So it's not, um, you can tick the I didn't do it box, but the idea is to try and get people looking for it um, and being responsible for it. And there's actually, um, so Hope for Justice have a sort of social enterprise arm called um, Slave Free Alliance, and they work with businesses to look into this and take this seriously and, and appreciate, you know, we're all we're all involved in this. How can we move forward rather than the kind of blame game, yeah. big bad business kind of culture? Exactly, yeah. So I, I think we were talking a bit about this um, off air as well, where I think we're becoming as a consumer a lot more aware of the uh, animal issues and the um, the issues around our food supply in terms of animal cruelty, but we're not really focusing on the humanitarian issues that are going and that plague our food supply chain um i was wondering if you could talk a bit about that because well i i think that that's exactly what my impression was that you know there is a shift in terms of people the demand is more for eco-friendly products now which is fantastic um i think that businesses are responding to that so it's very attractive for them they know that it's a very good marketing tool for them to make it sound as eco-friendly as possible um and they're making moves because that's what the demand is saying if we did that for human cruelty free products then that would be the same um i think there's a sort of two two pronged approach uh there's a top down and a bottom up like we as consumers can have a responsibility to look for ask encourage businesses um you know buying products that we can see are they've made a move to away from human cruelty but then also at the same time it's it's legal um targeting businesses making sure that they're accountable for their workers yeah the two things that i absolutely love as you're probably aware are coffee and chocolate uh, and, uh, so they're the two things i looked up because i knew <laughs> yeah, yeah. i'm glad I that that was i'm coming. so glad <laughs> so coffee and chocolate my two favorite things i always look for um certain like stamps and labels and it makes me feel better as a consumer that i'm making a concerted effort to at least choose products that label themselves as cruelty free or have a fair trade mm-hmm. pathway yeah. you gave me the unfortunate news a few <laughs> months back <laughs> I don't be nice <laughs> that those labels aren't always as reliable. reassuring and reliable as they could be um, i think that with fair trade with chocolate is probably the easiest way to ensure that um, your chocolate is taking, or the company's taking reasonable steps to make sure that workers are valued and paid well and they're not, you know, destroying communities. Um, Cadbury's, for example, was making sure that all their dairy milk products were fair trade in 2009. And I think by 2016, they were like, well, we're not going to do fair trade. We're going to do our own sustainable program, um, which is obviously not independent and you can't completely trust a company doing their own thing and they're part of craft Mm. which is not so good (laughs) with other things so you know that and actually now i think craft own green and blacks or something cadbury's own green and black so actually there's some changes there yeah 
I don't know. It's really, it's hard to... I've noticed a trend, um, and this isn't a big like anti-corporate spiel or whatever, because I think we do need to work with big industries and there are ways in which we can do that efficiently. But I am noticing a trend whereby bigger businesses are capturing and acquiring smaller businesses that have a very good sort of ethical standpoint, a very good consumer base Mm -hmm. that trust them implicitly. The one that comes to mind is like Pucker Herbs, for example. I love Pucker Herbs. I think they're great. They've got great teas and all the rest of it. They were started by um, two founders who who had genuine sort of um, uh, ethical standpoint in terms of making sure that their workers were compensated and they they sourced them ethically um but they've been acquired by a big corporation i think it was unilever a couple of years ago and so that kind of makes me feel a little bit un uncomfortable but at the same time i think we as consumers also need to appreciate that maybe some of these corporations do have some social backbone (laughs) yeah but then i think it's i think it's interesting because they for example i think is it capri's that that bought green and blacks uh it was uh it was either cabaret's or craft because i I think think they said they were going to run it as an independent entity yes so that it could retain its organic but already the organicness is slightly slipping away and i think you know it's really hard to be completely independent and be part of a big machine that doesn't necessarily yeah. prioritize. I, I think that's the standard sort of thing when uh, any big business acquires a smaller business. They keep a lot of the managerial roles uh, and the uh, employees in place to maintain their mm-hmm. sense of culture. But gradually over years, months or whatever, they will change the business to be a lot more profitable and to perhaps sometimes relax some of the things that are less of a priority, yeah, so to speak. Yeah. So, uh, and I, I noticed that with a few things, actually. Yeah, yeah. I, I agree. I think it's quite difficult to follow. Uh-huh. Um, and it's very difficult to sort of really truly be aware as a consumer. There are some products that, um, you know, you can know their whole ethos is about, you know, valuing their workers and, paying people well and not completely destroying <laughs> uprooting yeah. communities in the process um so you can you can go for brands that actively have this as their whole core um but it's difficult with the more high street stuff that we know that it, you know so the other thing that i love obviously is coffee yeah <laughs> oh well on right. the good food guide i was looking at it this morning yeah um and i was i was seeing which brands because they, they they do the traffic light system okay and second was Greg's. Really? Which I was really surprised that. Wow. Well I'm done, Greg's. Super surprised. I don't think at it that. scored very high on necessarily environmental, but the, the people, the um, fair trade was all Interesting. stamped, it seemed. Brilliant. And how do Good Food Guide actually do their sort of due diligence and investigation? Is it based I on. I think they look at policies okay. and um, also if there's any kind of campaigns against these organizations and they look through media stuff and i I'm, i think it's um they've got a sort of methodology section yeah yeah because i know there's a lot of um attention being given to like clothing and and that sort of arena but food i haven't really thought about because the supply chain as we were talking about before it's just so complicated yeah yeah incredibly so it is and i think probably with chocolate um the main concern was child labor um, and I think that of the children that were working for our chocolate, I think that the stat I saw was that half were under 14. Yeah. And if you're, if, if you're in a household where a child is in that industry, yeah. 
then a third of them don't go to school. So it's massively impactful for their whole future community as well. Um, so yeah, it's really, it's important and it's very distant from us. I think the more layers in between, yeah. I think you were mentioning earlier, the less you tangibly feel the consequences of... A hundred percent. It's like how... I view uh, animal cruelty and, you know, the choice that I make uh, whenever I'm out to essentially buy only plant-based or vegetarian foods or I'm in, in um, restaurants and stuff where I can't guarantee the quality of animal products and the care that they've, they've been undergone. But this whole notion, and this isn't to, you know, rag on anyone that's vegan or 100% plant-based for ethical reasons, but this whole notion of cruelty-free really annoys me mm. because I think it completely misses another massive under-talked point about human cruelty. Yeah, I completely agree. It's so under-talked about. So, yeah, I, it's just not it's not, not on the agenda at the moment Absolutely. for consumers. Mm. I mean, it is for a smaller proportion. Yeah. But um, yeah, you're right. It's all about free from animal cruelty and um, eco-friendly production. Mm. Um, both important, but absolutely human cruelty is so important and it's not, it's very under talked about. Yeah. And to the notion that you can eat uh, just plants or, you know, go to your grocery store or whatever and be cruelty free. I, I just think it's, um, it's very naive. And I think if you truly want to be conscious mm. consumers, we need to be a lot more aware and talk about these, you know, uh, uncomfortable points, which is why I'm so glad that, you know, uh, you came on and we wanted to talk about this. But, um, the other side to that is that it's incredibly difficult to do in a modern era. And I don't want to like get people to think, oh, okay, fine. I've got to, I've got to eat only plants and I've got to be uh, mindful about where I get my products from and all these different things, but it definitely adds up and we're not going to actually change our landscape that goes beyond food and our humanitarian landscape, unless we actually make these choices as consumers. Yeah. One of the things I think I've, I've been thinking about recently when talking about like the world's problems is I think it's very, you can't care about everything because it will destroy you. hundred <laughs> um, percent, yeah. With Mon Savory, I can't fathom the extent of it. Mm. So there are, what's my demographic? Where can I impact and where can I impact well? And I think that because every area is talked about so much, there's a lot of guilt and shame that comes from, well, you're not doing enough, you're not doing enough. And it's, it's actually completely counterintuitive. It actually switches people off. So I'm, I'm not anti, you know, my thing, I'm so excited about the move towards an eco-friendly, you know, my battle is not necessarily that. So I will support and encourage people who do that. My battle is with human cruelty and what that looks like in our day to day. And actually more, more my passion is the health impact of this, yeah. the public health and prevention response, but also the health impact of modern slavery on an individual and a community and the whole society. Um, you sort of pick your thing and you do it really well and excited about other people doing their thing. Um, and you have this ripple works. effect that will, um, you know, uh, permeate through your local community and the people that you can actually influence. I, I read um, uh, your Medium post, I think it was published uh, a year ago or so, where you have this um, experience where you're in A&E and, you know, you come across a patient uh, and, you know, it, you, your thoughts kind of come out afterwards after having that interaction. I thought maybe you could share that because uh, that was... Which one was oh, it? Oh, yeah, because you've got a few. Uh, the one where I think um, you, uh, 
it's, the it's a rom- back pain or palpitations? No, no, it's a Romanian uh, patient who oh. comes on, and he's the same age as your brother. Yes, no, my oh gosh, that one. I was actually yeah. on the train here, like just having a look, and I completely remember him. So he's a seventeen-year-old um, in the middle of the night in A and E, and I'm in minors. Me and an emergency nurse practitioner in a major trauma center minors by by myself, yeah. pretty much, and it was just awful. <laughs> Um, trying to keep afloat. And then I see this 17-year-old, you know, come in with a knee injury, playing football, sort him out, send him off to x-ray. And then um, I hear one of the nurses mention that he was from Albania. And then I sort of sort of suddenly realised, I was like, hang on. So he's 17, he's on his own. It's the middle of the night. Where is anyone else in his life? And he's from Albania. And I was just thinking like, uh, the reason Albania twigged is because actually looking at the people who've been identified as being exploited and, and victims of modern slavery in the UK, um, Albania is one of the highest origin countries for men and women, like massively so. So I just, um, it just sort of all shifted for me. I was like, okay, actually I need to think a bit more f- about this teenager and then I, I I think it really hit home actually because he just looked very similar to well he just he didn't look very similar but he reminded me strongly of my brother and I was just saying so like where do you live who do you live with at the moment and he was saying he lives with three friends he's come over by himself he was fleeing troubles he said and I didn't you know it's not actually sometimes okay to delve in someone's deepest trauma just because I'm nosy so I didn't go near there but um he was just I just couldn't, I was so shocked. I was like this little boy who's on his own. He's a child still, this child completely. Brain doesn't fully develop until you're 25. You're not actually an adult biologically until you're 25. Um, And he's just on his own. He's in the asylum seeking process. He's waiting for his status to be assessed by the home office to get refugee status. And I just thought he is absolutely prime prime suspect for being targeted because he's a young fit well young man who you know England doesn't really care about no one really cares about and you know he could just hey look I've got a job working on a farm do you want a bit of work you're not allowed to work until you're a refugee Mm. um look you can get some cash in hand come with me we've got some work for you Mm. It's just so, yeah. I was so nervous in the moment. I was like, oh my gosh, he's yeah. not safe. Yeah, yeah. And there's so many things that I pulled out from that article that I read and then chatting to you about it. Two main things were, A, oh my God, have I missed something like that? Because the number of times I've been in a in the middle of the night in North London or uh, West London, wherever I've worked, and people come in and they have a story like I was playing football and it's a minor injury and you don't think anything of it. You don't think to think about that background. You don't think to think of, you know, outside of pediatrics where we're very, we're much better at safeguarding because mm-hmm. that's part of our mandatory training. Well, we are way. with young kids. I'd say with adolescents, we're really stuck. Definitely, yeah. Because <laughs> then that in-between stage where there's always this fight about yeah. whether they should be in pediatrics, whether they should be in adults and stuff. Yeah. And I think that, again, is another massive gray area. But also when people see particularly those coming from Eastern European countries, um, or re- reality it's central European countries but um, we don't care about them we just think we think of them as you know the the, the freeloaders the, the hostile the environment thing exactly that really infuriated me as well because mm. I was thinking this is a young boy and actually this is someone's possibly son or brother mm. and England 
doesn't welcome him. He's here, he's in the system and he's getting this, you know, he's got the council accommodation through the asylum process, but actually he's not particularly safe. Is he got like a setup? Has he got, has he been plumbed into a little community? Like how, that made me a bit angry actually. I was like, someone will look at him as a stat, Mm. an immigration stat. Mm. Um, It's hard to look at them in the face and go, you're an immigrant. Uh, I just, yeah. It's really hard. Any of the people who make the policies, if they come and actually meet someone, I think yeah. it's really hard to, to speak in the same language. Yeah, which is why I'm so glad that you're doing a lot more things with the government at a, you know, a, at a huge top-down level. Um, when you talk to health professionals, as you do as part of your courses with VITA, do you ever get any, um, not uh, backlash, but uh, any resistance on the basis of the number of things that uh, we as health professionals need to do or be aware of. Because I know certainly when I talk about coloring medicine and the importance of nutrition, even oh, though- they're like another subject yeah, that we're trying to fit into a curriculum. Exactly. Even though the statistics clearly state that diet is the number one uh, reason as to why we're seeing so many issues that lead to a as well as secondary care admissions. Um, it, it, there's still that- that sort of resistance against that. And I'm wondering whether you've ever come across that or whether people actually actually take to the subject matter given the huge statistics that you were talking about earlier. I've not had that. And I think it's because I tell a story. Um, It's not, it's not, um, firstly, it fits within safeguarding. One of the things I'm very passionate about is what is safeguarding? You you know, you, you learn it as a medic. You have hundreds of hours of, online crap (laughs) that just doesn't change air sorry i'm not like it Uh, doesn't change the way that you actually do anything on the shop floor it's not applicable to your everyday it's really hard to know how on earth i learn all this stuff like list of red flags speak to your safeguarding lead my i mean one of the things that i really try with my training is you you come to the training you learn about what do you do when someone is in front of you what kind of language can you use how can you phrase how can you phrase things in a way to get an accompanying person out of the room without raising their alarm bells so that you can speak to someone on their own? How do you create a safe, confidential space so that if someone chose to disclose to you safety issues, they felt safe to, and it was their control over the situation, not me trying to grab information because I need to tick some boxes. Um, so like language that you can practice, you we, we use actors. So you role play these scenarios with actors and the actors give feedback. And sometimes it's a very clear case of abuse and you know there's a clear line of action. Sometimes it's very much like up in the air. I have a gut instinct, something's wrong, but this is an adult. They have capacity, they want to leave. They're not telling me anything. What do I do? So most of it is learning what I can do as an as a doctor in an A&E setting or a GP setting or wherever, what the limits of my, um, what can I do? And actually one of the things that I really emphasize is you, it's so, it's massively impactful to a person to have a space where for the first time, probably in a long time or their whole life, they are empowered, they're in control of the scenario. I'm not trying to coerce, I'm not trying to force information from them. I'm trying to give them a space where they feel safe to tell me if they're worried that something's going on. And if they don't, that's okay. But then to emphasize, if you ever feel unsafe, if you ever feel threatened, if anyone makes you do something you don't want to, you can come to A&E. This is a safe place to come and we'll we'll be here to help. Um, You know, it's about planting a seed. You know, you're an individual worthy of dignity and care. 
So when you're ready, this is a safe place. Not brave doctor rescues victim. Yeah. So yeah, my, exactly, my yeah. you know, it's difficult. I can't even remember your original question. It's not about, you know, trying to add something to a curriculum necessarily. I think for me, it's more about replacing with an actually practical piece of education. So most of the time people see this as a part of safeguarding um, and they've been very excited about it. I mean, we're rolling out and I, since last summer, um, you know, you must experience this. People are like, oh, come and teach us or oh, come and teach us. Yeah. And I'm like, actually, I've, I, I, this is a lot and I, yeah. Yeah, can I be paid for my yeah, time? Yeah, like yeah, simple things. Yeah, yeah. But this is a sustainable program now. It's yeah. it's funded. It's yeah. being paid for by NHS trusts across yeah. London and the Southeast. You know, we've got plans to roll out across the whole of wider London. I want to roll this out nationally for, well, we're targeting F1s and F2s, so the first two years of doctor's whole career. 100%. It's really exciting. We've yeah. got, you know, 1,200 people who've been trained. Amazing. And these are doctors that, I'm so excited because they're going out and they're going to have kind, empowering encounters with their patients. And I don't need more people to be identified because sometimes that's not the safest thing for someone. Yes. Yeah. Um, it's not necessarily because our government system's not quite... Yes, it's you not know, built to support them, is it? it it's, mm. it's there and it's probably one of the better ones in the world, but it's there are serious issues, mm. which you don't need to go into today, but like immigration issues mm-hmm. and things. Mm-hmm. So actually a real, uh, you know, a positive outcome really trying to impart is you're an individual that worthy of dignity and care. So mm-hmm. planting a seed, starting to challenge the behavior they've only experienced. So that's, that's, that's the training. I remember like at the start of this conversation, we we're talking about the things that you can do within the locus of your control within your own community. And luckily for you, that is the medical community mm. that are more likely to come into direct yes. contact with yeah. modern slaves. Yeah, and we've got um, a f- an amazing opportunity to be completely independent. You know, um, that you yeah we can we don't need to talk about today, but the the issues of charging people who don't have recourse to public funds. So if they're in the UK illegally, then they have to pay for their care after A and E. But other than that, we've got a person who's a person, and it doesn't matter who or where they come where they come from. And trafficking, by the way, it sounds like it's an immigration issue. You know, the highest number of people identified are from the UK. So it's not just people coming from abroad. Um, but you, I, you've got an independent case. I think that's a really case. important part of the, the conversation because I think perhaps most people listening were thinking, okay, well, this is far away. Mm-hmm. You know, this is happening in countries where they don't have as many regulations, perhaps in more torn countries or parts of Europe where they don't have regulations. Mm-hmm. This is happening in our own backyard. Yes. And one of the things that I I usually start when I'm talking to, say, um, directors of medical education who are thinking about getting this training for their trainees is the first story I tell is of a patient I saw called Joe. I've changed the name, um, who was actually disruptive, rude. He was um, causing a right raucous. He was intoxicated and the nurses were like, please, can we just boot him out? Because Mm. he was being a pain. Mm. and I went and spoke to him and he was he was all tough and just like, why am I here? And oh, I've got pain here. And it, it was really challenging. Mm-hmm. I was really pulling on the like deepest part of patience here. Yeah, yeah. Um, but after a while, um, I asked him what he did for work and he was set and he sort of stopped and slowed and everything kind of took it down. And and I uh, he told me he just left his work. He worked in a kitchen. And then I was like, did you get paid when you worked there? 
which is an unusual question, but a really easy one that I usually ask after. Right. And he he said he'd worked there for months. Um, he was forced to sleep on the premises. He wasn't allowed to leave. He never got paid for the work that he did. He worked constantly. He had to sleep on the floor. Um, he was beaten up occasionally by the owner and he's just run away and now he's homeless. So I, that is how trauma can present in someone, you know, fight, flight or freeze. These are self-protection strategies people take on to push you away because why would I trust you? I've only been abused by anyone. So, um, I thought that was a really interesting story. And there was a, there was a, report that's recently come out looking at rough sleepers in London and of the 9,000 rough sleepers um, in this report, one in 10 had experienced modern slavery. So we all see homeless people constantly. So this is everyone, everyone's coming in contact with people who've been exploited. Mm. And I I present that to um, Catherine Henderson at the Royal College of Emergency Medicine. And she came up to me at the end and she said, I've seen thousands of Joes and I've never once thought of modern slavery. Yeah, as you were telling me the story, Mm. the number of people that I'm flashing back to in the last month that I've been uh, in contact with over the A&E, I never think to Mm. think of that question, did you get paid? What do you do do for a living now? Are you free to leave your job if you you wanted to? 100%. And we... We deal with a lot of, especially in a and we deal with a lot of aggressive patients that we just assume mm. are aggressive people and they are unreasonable. But actually, like you were saying, you have to dig really deep to find their empathy and compassion and to figure out exactly why yeah. this certain person is reacting this way. Human beings are naturally, I, I'm a firm believer mm. that human beings are moral and naturally kind. Mm. There has to be something really, really traumatous mm for someone to behave in that manner in Mm. an environment where you're actually, you know, dealing with people who are are employed to look after you. Yeah. I think it also works in that, um, you know, often traffickers use lots of different control mechanisms. And one of the things they can say is, you know, the authorities will um, deport you, they'll imprison you, they won't listen, they won't believe you. The lawyers are in our pockets, we pay the lawyers. So um, why would they trust me? And so actually, if I'm trying to coerce and get as much information about their trauma as I possibly can, then from their point of view, I'm just coercing them like their traffickers do. So I'm actually, I've had an opportunity to kind of challenge that in, in the sense of like, no, this is your, this is your space and I'm not going to try and make you do anything you don't want to do. Um, and also one of the things is not seeing everyone as a victim of trafficking. Um, you're not going to know what abuse someone has seen most of the time. Someone sitting in front of you and you're, you've got a bit of a gut instinct or you're kind of concerned about the dynamic between the two people in front of you. Um, I'm not necessarily going to uncover this person has been trafficked for sexual exploitation or farming. Um, but I'm going to get this person out of the room. I'm going to give this person a bit of time. I'm going to let them know that whatever they say to me is confidential unless I'm concerned about their safety or if they're children. And then I'm going to get a translator, an independent translator. Um, and I'm going to change my body language and ask them, do you feel safe? Does anyone make you do anything you don't want to? I'm going to meet their medical needs as much as I possibly can because if I'm worried someone's trafficked, then it's high, high likely that they're not going to necessarily come back. Um, if someone's got, you know, early pregnancy, vaginal bleeding, and I'm worried it's a miscarriage, 
where normally if you know they're stable, then you can send them to the early pregnancy unit the next day. I might get the obstetrics reg down to scan them now because at the end of the day, I don't know it's more, something more dangerous like an ectopic. Mm-hmm. I'm going to give them the antibiotics into their hand now yeah. because I don't trust that they'll go away with their you know prescription form and go and get it from the pharmacy. It's the small things mm. that you can do as a medic that actually maintain the continuity of care. Because like you said, if you can't guarantee that someone's going to fulfill that prescription or come back for the EPAU, early pregnancy assessment unit, then you, you know you have to change your practice. And that's, inc- I mean, I'm just such a big fan of what you do with VTA and I think it's so necessary. And I'm, I feel very ignorant to the, the wider world and the fact that we actually have huge responsibility as medical practitioners to be aware of this mm-hmm. and how this spans beyond medicine as well and actually mm-hmm. goes into the consumer sort of field because that's only that's how we're going to have change yeah, yeah. in the UK. But I, th- I imagine, you know, you do these things and most of the doctors I know, they're kind, they're empowering their patients. Yeah. It's just there are extra... It's it's adding to the skills they already have, yeah, um, and phrases. And sometimes, often, people don't feel confident with things like getting someone out of the room because, you know, if they say, "Actually, I'd rather stay here," then what do you do? It's a bit awkward. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> so my tip for everyone is practice <laughs> yeah. when you're not worried, and then you're really fluent and really natural and firm and routine. And there's no, is that okay with you yeah. if you wait out in the waiting room? It's Right, I'm going to examine now. So if yeah. you wait in the waiting room, I'll call you back in five, ten minutes. Okay, yeah. thank yeah. you. Take them to the door. No yeah. question. Yeah, exactly. It's like how I uh, used to practice um, taking sexual health histories. And the way yeah, I... Yeah, you pra- literally have to practice it. You have you? to practice it, yeah. <laughs> so and I feel like I was lucky to work in Brighton yeah. where we had like one of the, the best run gum clinics in the UK and yeah. one of the most busy as well. Um, and that's what it was like baptism and fight. You just had to get on with it. And now I like using that experience of asking this super awkward questions you know you you can take histories and you can be a lot more sort of comforting and you know the vernacular completely changes yeah 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 a lot of it is confidence absolutely um but i find that what we are trained to do at the moment is not there's a huge amount of just between knowledge and informing safeguarding lead and i'm even seeing new training that's coming out safeguarding training this safeguarding training this Mm. and i look at the learning outcomes and it's all background knowledge inform your safeguarding lead Mm, yeah i mean there is quite a hefty amount that happens in between that and there's a massive impact of being a person a professional person who someone discloses you know some form of abuse to the impact that can have if you you go actually this is a very important moment for that person i must validate them you know this is really brave of you to tell me thank you for telling me because the the courage that it must take to break some of the layers of their fear and coercion to tell you something like that and if you miss it you miss it mm. so it's more important our in our manner to mark those occasions and be like thank you for telling me that that was so brave mm. um for any form of abuse and we learned that a little bit for domestic um, domestic domestic abuse abuse as well validation it's so essential and it's just a little thing that will make them go and i've seen people's shoulders drop as soon as i validate what they've just said Mm. like oh like because i'm terrified they've done the wrong thing yeah yeah i i think as medics we 
love process. We love an algorithm. We love, okay, if this happens, this is what I do. Whereas actually there is that human connection mm. that we as uh, healthcare practitioners should be pretty fluent with, but there are little things that you mm. just said there, validation, little things. you know, the, the way you communicate with someone, the way you get other people out the room, for example, yeah. those small things really, really do help in terms of, you know, ultimately helping ameliorate their situation for that person. Yeah, absolutely. With Vita, you've already told me about your sort of plans to roll out across the UK. and for training, yeah. Exactly. What what does the ideal scenario look like for Vita in terms of your mission um, over the next five years? That's a good question. <laughs> um, I think taking us, before answering that, I think just to help picture what Vita is in its essence, it's not just a training program. So training is one of the prongs of our approach. The other two are research and advocacy. So myself and my colleagues are are the expertise. We speak to the Home Office, we speak to the NHS, we speak to the Independent Anti-Slavery Commissioner and until recently the World Health Organization. So we advise from, um, you know, policy from the top-down approach and then research. We're really passionate about everything being evidence-based, you know, what we're doing, what we're teaching, what we're telling organizations to do needs to be evidence-based. Um, so my ideal is to see, I think Vita is filling the gap for the health voice in this world. Um, you know, there's a lot of emphasis on the immigration and the legal and the criminal justice aspect, which is always how it's been talked about. And yes, that's always the most important thing to get a, a nation on board with. I think the next thing is looking at health, prioritizing the health and also the public health approach. So I think to answer your question, I'd like to see the training delivered, the right training delivered to the right level and the right roles. So junior doctors receiving training that's appropriate for their level. Um, but then actually we want, we're looking to develop a training that's specifically for safeguarding leads, people who will be receiving the training, uh, sorry, receiving referrals from people like me um, on the shop floor. And then also I want to see what we are looking into research-wise and advising being taken on board into the recovery process. So once people are identified and safeguarded, they can they can have a health approach to their recovery, a health focus to their recovery. I'd love to see medical specialists who who understand trauma, how how trauma rewires your brain, rewires your physiology, mm. like working with people when they're in the crisis and then through their recovery. I don't know if that's five years, that might yeah. be much longer than that, but I think maybe five years, I think we're focusing on rolling out the training at the right sort of stages. Yeah, I love the ambition with um, particularly the research element, looking at rewiring of brains, because we know, as you said earlier, you know, we, our brains are still developing up to the age of 25. Mm -hmm. And then there's also a lot more that we are learning about neuroplasticity, even at later ages, and actually how deep-seated trauma can present itself and manifest in lots of different ways yeah. and you know that as a mechanism for addictive behaviors uh, substance misabuse as well as you know lack of uh, connection and communication mm -hmm. among their own society so i think that's absolutely critical and i think you know it, it, it expands beyond uh, modern slavery in a sense as well yeah. um there's there's so many things that we need to be paying more attention to but because it's quite um 
uh, it's not, I, I don't want to uh, uh, disrespect it by saying it's a fluffy subject, but it's mm. not tangible to it's, those yeah. in, in powerful positions that want to see, you know, data and actually, you know, um, yeah. uh, specific changes over a four year political cycle. Um, but yeah. Well, I think also that reactionally, every, everything's done on a reaction basis of like, right, let's try and reduce the harm of that, reduce the harm of that. Mm-hmm. And actually it needs much more of an upstream approach. Mm-hmm. You need to look at the determinants that like lead people into um, an, a situation of vulnerability where they're likely to be exploited. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's, you know, going to have massively more powerful impact than you know, once it's started or once it's finished and recovery. Yeah. Um, and for, for those who are listening who are outside of the medical community, um, what sort of advice or uh, resources would you suggest that people go and check out and actually t- tangible things that they can do today to actually become a, a more of a conscious consumer? I think that, well, because we're, we're talking about food, um, the Good Shopping Guide is a good resource. If you are a business person, um, you run a business, it's at, there's so much you could do with that. I think contacting the Slave Free Alliance through um, Hope for Justice to look at your supply chains and making sure you are deeply embedding human being value in your organization. Uh, we're NHS England Clinical Entrepreneurs. You know, we've got our colleagues, our cohort are setting up new tech firms. Look at what your supply chain, where you're getting your metals for your tech gizmos. Where are you getting your, um, I mean, I don't speak tech. (laughs) We're both like, I don't really understand what anyone else is talking about. But um, yeah, you know, they're starting new companies. So getting these things in early, like prioritizing the like human beings early rather than going, oh, well, we've subcontracted out four levels down. So now we're a little bit like, well, we can't really do much about that. Yeah, you need to get those get prices in early. in early. Yeah, absolutely. Because if it's not front of mind, it will fall by the wayside and won't be a priority yeah. later on. Yeah. One of the things that actually is a priority for me within Vita and actually the organization and hopefully which will grow and more employees and things is is prioritizing that within the organization, like the workers' health and well-being of ourselves and that's partly what I, I think we all need to learn in the NHS. Uh, you know, we, we we put on a pedestal those consultants that stay in until like midnight every day Absolutely. and cut their first oh in the morning. God. Like, actually, that that's not what I want to be like. The people, you know, that's they've sacrificed themselves for the system. And yes, it looks all good because they get the gold stars. But actually, like, that's not a healthy person, in my opinion. Yeah. You know, you're you're worthy of like freedom i was walking my dog yesterday and i was like really stressed out i've got emails i've got oh you know vita's becoming a thing and it's all kind of churning and then i was like i'm free to walk through a field like and just be in the moment and walk through a field that's amazing and just feel just little things just being like really grateful really look into what freedom looks like in your life freedom and health and well-being of workforce Put that in your business early. I really hope you enjoyed that podcast. It was a privilege to have uh, Dr. Rosie come into the kitchen um, and talk about this incredible growing organization that's based on 
evidence-based interventions, but it's also a survivor-focused organization. Um, and I, I really see her achieving her goal of making sure healthcare workers across all settings are aware of the situation because I just think like myself I was ignorant to this uh, and now I see how pervasive the problem is and I hope that I can actually do something in a small way uh, and not miss anything in the future because that would just be the worst thing please check out the website uh, for Vita which is vita-training.com and make sure you follow them uh, at vita underscore network at Dr. Rosie Riley as well, all on Twitter. Um, the website is still in development, but I think by the time this podcast goes out, it will be up there. Please support her as well. If you are a healthcare practitioner, get in touch. Make sure that you're writing to your own hospitals and making sure that you're getting this training because it is super, super important. All the links to what we chatted about on the uh, podcast will be on the doctorskitchen.com as well. Give this a five-star review if you enjoyed listening to it. It really does help spread the message and share this amongst your friends who might be healthcare professionals or otherwise as well because I think it's just a very very important conversation to have um, and it's my privilege to share it with you guys as well I hope I can continue uh, introducing more different concepts uh, different topics rather into onto the podcast because I just think genuinely it makes us better human beings if it, if it even if it isn't you know directly related to uh, nutrition um, so I hope that, that was helpful even though it was a little bit of a tangent today Thank you very much for listening and uh, have a fantastic day and I will speak to you again soon on the pod. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.